Hello and welcome again, everybody, to this week's edition of the Marathon Bet podcast. I heart so many people now listen to it. Nearly two-thirds of the population of the United Kingdom and many beyond the United Kingdom are now listening and downloading the podcast. I hardly need to explain what it is, but essentially it's myself, Danny Kelly, and the legend that is certainly around his own house, Simon Jordan, the former owner of Crystal Palace. These days, you see his name everywhere, television, radio, written columns and all the rest of it. And for this series, we've been doing the seven deadly sins of football. Now, of course, there are 10 programmes in this series and you'll listen to programme number nine. So we've done the official seven deadly sins as laid out by in the Ten Commandments, I imagine. Now we're having a real swipe. Yeah, now we're getting to the stuff that really bothers us. Last week, I chose nine, can't stand line, the sin of mendacity. And this week, Simon has chosen dishonour. And uh, we'll get stuck into those who are dishonourable very, very soon. But Simon, I must start first by saying welcome. Thank you, mate. Thank Always you very much. to be here with yeah, you. Of course, yeah. The reasons why the Mexican and US have got the 2026 World Cup, I think, is because they've written a business plan that says that FIFA are going to get $15.5 billion. That's the only real reason that it's there for. The 24 people who had the final say on that, 20 of them have subsequently been, been indicted. banned, yeah. imprisoned, yeah. or told they can no longer be around football. But when, you know, we beat the Swedes in the World Cup last year and our fans have got to run into IKEA and jump all over their beds and take the mickey out of them. I just think to myself, where is the quality of our thinking sometimes? Patini is wearing a shirt saying no to corruption and Maradona's wearing a shirt that says no to drugs. I, I hope, knew you were going to say that, yeah. I, I hope it hasn't been photoshopped. I hope it's real because it's absolutely brilliant. And before we get uh, stuck into this week's sin of dishonour, last week we were doing the sin of lying. And we asked you on Twitter, you can follow us on Twitter at MarathonBetPod, at MarathonBetPod, which groups of fans most likely to be deceiving themselves, to lying to themselves. I'm afraid two or three clubs came out way ahead here. Infinite underscore 254 on Twitter just said Manchester United with three laughing faces with tears coming out of their eyes. Cammy McManus at CamDog2020 um, said Rangers and that Rangers football club up there in Scotland came in for a particular, I mean of course they did, no doubt Celtic fans were getting after them. Stuart Lawson said Rangers fans, they keep telling themselves they're the same club, are referring to of course the fact that Rangers had a change of legal status when they were bunged down the leagues. Callum Saunders, he's a Liverpool fan, Manchester United fans because they keep telling themselves they're a great club clearly not when they're losing 2-0 at West Ham and then 1-0 to Newcastle three points above the relegation zone well Callum be careful what you wish for of course because uh, one day they are three points above the relegation zone the next day Manchester United powerful enough institution if they got the right manager they had the emotional and financial pull to turn themselves around at any given time James Lumsden also wants to laugh at poor old Manchester United fans for lying to themselves I would say of course Rangers, Man United, Liverpool, whoever is in this particular barrier, all of us who are fans have a propensity for sugarcoating the truth about our own club. I know I do it all the time. What did you mean by honour and dishonour? What's your definition What's of those my things? understanding of it, yeah. I mean, my main reason for choosing it is because I think that this game has a great deal of responsibility in the way it represents itself, a great deal of obligation and responsibility to act in an appropriate fashion. And I think a lot of the time it doesn't. I think we can go into the depth of it, but when you look at the people that run the game and the set blatters of the world, who I'm sure we'll take a swing at, I think they dishonour the game when they don't 
operate in a fashion which I believe is appropriate for something that is as influential as football and sport is. So my main focus was to look at the ideals of responsibilities of those in positions of influence, whether it's a player, a manager, an owner, an agent or a governing body. They're there to act with a degree of honour and integrity can and I not add, to Can I add us in the media to that list as well? Absolutely right. <laughs> that too. Very much so. Yeah, OK. Well, listen, uh, thank you. I mean, I get that because it's not without... There is a reason why football wasn't marketed it was the day before marketing but it was always known as the beautiful game yep. because there is something extraordinarily wonderful about a game that is so simple I mean without getting to jumpers for goalposts it's an incredibly simple game to play if you've got anything can be a goal and kids around the world you don't need a lot of equipment for it it's a beautiful game and the way it's spread around the world you know, transcends languages every other sp- of course yeah. you get into a taxi in South America and you point at the taxi driver has a little emblem of yeah. the club he's hanging, hanging down, down. Yeah. you point at it and he'll go you're from England yeah. and you'll go yeah and he'll say Bobby Charlton and I'll say Pele and suddenly without speaking a word of each other's common language yeah. we're talking about football you have an affinity and that's why I think Simon you're right to pick on those who take that beauty yeah. and for personal gain or through shortcomings dishonour it and we'll talk about a lot of those I think we should start from the very top yep. the most horrendous thing that's happened in football over the past 20 years is to watch the people who are its guardians who are its custodians yep turn it into first a laughing stock, then a personal fiefdom, yeah. and then their own global ATM cash machine. Absolutely. And I'm talking about people like Blatter yeah. and Platini. Absolutely Let's start right. with Blatter first. He took over world football full of, we must now move on, globalise the game, and we must protect it from all the ills of the modern world. He turned out that he was those ills. He was those very, very, very things. I mean, yes, he's a plague on our house in certain respects because he got away with it for a very long period of time. And the nature of the way that FIFA was supposed to be the guardian of the game, was supposed to be the blueprint for how sport let's be clear all sports have governing bodies and all governing bodies have flaws because there isn't a perfect way to run things there's always going to be challenges and people's shortcomings but when you've got the level of deceit manipulation and corruption and pollution from the very guardians of the game it tells you that there's something very concerning about people's understanding of their responsibilities it also of course steers into the narrative that money and power are very corrosive and corrupting and give people senses of entitlement they can operate in a certain way but when you see people like Sepp Blatter and I'm going to put Platini in the same category because I think there's an inherent arrogance about the way that these guys have operated. The laughing ideals that Platini can have somehow merited this million pounds or million and a half or whatever it was and that somehow it had been completely forgotten, overseen and then come back and had to be paid at a different time just perplexes me. But you look up and down the world and you look at fans and you look at the ideas that fans have of football and what it means to them and what they tell their young sons about football and then you look at the guy at the very top in Sepp Blatter and see how he has allowed his own greed 
his own attitude towards what he's entitled to and his belief, which football has a tendency to do. Football is an island, Dan, and we've spoken about this before, yeah. where I've sat there, being part of the island, where you, you do think you're cut off from the rest of the world. You do think that the normal rules of society don't apply to you because you're living in this rarefied environment where people are so fascinated with what it is that you're involved in, what's in the business of sport, what's on the pitch, what's going on behind the scenes, what football really involves. But you should never, ever forget the responsibility that you have to have integrity. And when you're when you're looking after the world game, as Sepp Blatter was, you have no business being anywhere near corruption, vote rigging, uh, cash for questions or whatever the hell else Sepp Blatter and his glossy little gang of cohorts from Charles... Was it Wagner? Um, Chuck Blazer Chuck was the Blazer. American guy. but the, There was a Warner, Jack yeah, Warner. Jack Warner, Little indeed. Jack Warner, he sat in the corner, yeah, yeah, yeah. eating out his own pie. Absolutely <laughs> right. And you look at these guys and you think to yourself, it's scandalous. It's a scandal that they were allowed to get away with it for so long. And football should have been cleaned much quicker and rid of these sort of people. Just for the uh, avoidance of doubt, famously, of course, two World Cups were awarded together. The reason why the Russia and Qatar votes were done at one was because Blatter thought he was going to be taken out of office. So he wanted to have as much power over over the future of football as he'd had over the past. And we all know that the building blocks and the 24 people who had the final say on that 20 of them have subsequently been, been banned, yeah. imprisoned, or told they can no longer be around football. It's an incredible level of corruption. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's systemic, it's endemic, it's all of the emics, because ultimately if you've got 90% or 80% of the people that make up the influencers about where such tournaments are awarded have all been found guilty by association or by definition with corruption in the game. Or by the FBI. Or by the (laughs) FBI. It gives you a feeling that there's something so wrong with the sport that dominates the world that it's almost difficult to understand how they've gotten away with it for so long. In the end, I wondered about Sepp Blatter. I mean, he got to be quite an old man. I mustn't be ageist about this. But there were times, like when he turned up for that, there was a party after one of their big meetings. And of course, their big meetings, obviously the game is global, but the big meetings always happen in beautiful climates. They never go to the Faroe Islands for their big meeting, do they? (laughs) And there was a party afterwards. And he turned up dressed in a kind of leotard with some uh, Hawaiian lace, you know, those um, (laughs) necklaces of flowers. Oh, yeah. And it kind of what looked to me like a Native American headdress on. Now, maybe it was a fancy dress party. Mm. I don't know. But seeing the head of world football behaving like that, equally, do you remember the time they were doing some award ceremony or it's one of the big draws? And he's a short man. This yeah. fantastically statuesque woman came out to help him, you know, hold a piece of card and all the rest of it. And he did this kind of dance around her. And I wondered, I thought, I'm not a doctor. Has this fella lost his mind or is he now so cocky with his own power that he's almost rubbing in our face by saying he was trying to become a sort of celebrity on top of everything else. Well, it goes to the centre of what I said a moment ago, which is basically football loses sight or people within the confines of football lose sight of the reality of what they are, who they are and what they really are. And and it gives you this sense of entitlement. It gives you this feeling of self-importance and beyond the realms of normal people and what normal average people have to experience on a daily basis doesn't apply to the world of football. So the idea that Sepp Blatter would be living in a sort of a little bubble where somehow or another, as the head of FIFA, the most powerful and influential sports body in the world, should A, be corrupt, should 
B, be want to be representing himself in a certain way that makes himself look ridiculous, goes to the very heart of what I was saying to you a moment ago, which is ultimately football lives in a different place than other people do, and it doesn't see itself, and it doesn't have any sense of irony. I still see him now being interviewed, and he keeps saying things like, I haven't been banned, I'm only suspended. It's like it's, it yeah. just cannot get through to his skull that he's even done anything well, wrong. He's a despot, isn't he? I mean, that's what he is. For reasons best known, and it is all about vested interest, you know, one of the reasons why I was often vilified in football is because they say to you, if you talk about things that challenge vested interest, you're all going to, always going to be alienated. The idea that the people that kept Blatter in authority have to be complicit, have to be part and parcel of the overall devaluing of a unique environment which is the business of football the FIFA World Cup has its own set of stigmas now because of the very name FIFA being stuck on a World Cup that actually the wasn't world used to own FIFA. it and yeah. now FIFA, now, now own, FIFA it. own it yeah absolutely what about FIFA law the, the temerity I know. The, the I know I know where you're going with this yeah yeah well you know whether it's in Russia it. or Qatar or England or wherever your laws, the laws that have come down through our courts and through our democracies for a thousand, fifteen hundred years, suddenly are superseded. Have to, for two or three weeks are yeah. superseded by yeah. FIFA law. But it's laughable, Dan. Isn't it laughable that anyone actually, people actually swallow this nonsense? <laughs> First and foremost, the reason why FIFA choose locations is nothing to do with giving people an opportunity. It's all to do with money. The reasons why the Mexican and US have got the 2026 World Cup, I think, is because they've written a business plan that says that FIFA are going to get $15.5 billion. That's the only real reason that it's there for. So the idea that people have to bend over and listen to this absolute claptrap that FIFA rules somehow supersede the law. I'd almost swallow that whole if they could show me where the $15.5 billion go. is going, mm. is it building football pitches, 3G pitches in underdeveloped countries? Is it allowing coaching for boys and girls who might want to enjoy the game and keep themselves fit and all the rest of it? But we never see any of that, do we? It just disappears into this more. Well, yeah. I mean, ultimately, what you hear is the level... When you've got to that level of money, corruption comes in hand in hand with it. And ultimately, the beneficiaries of that have been individuals that have built fiefdoms. I think we are now getting a slightly cleaner house. But I still think FIFA has a long way to go as a governing body, has a greater degree of responsibility beyond reproach, getting involved in trying to hijack domestic tournaments now by competing with UEFA for Champions League, I think is dishonouring the idea of what FIFA was built to be, which was to be the governing body of football sport and not necessarily to be an entity that's purely driven by one opportunity. How much money can it create for itself? Let me ask you a question as a football administrator, Simon. Why has UEFA, which has got 90% of the big clubs in the world, excluding a few in Argentina and elsewhere has got 99% of all the excellent professional footballers in the world, yep. has got the most prestigious tournament in the Champions League. Why has UEFA broken away so that it can at least dissociate itself from the utter corruption of FIFA? Now, I know Platini was in many ways just as bad, well, um, but why haven't they done that? I just think that there is an order of relevance and relationships. And if you look at the relationships that have been developed between UEFA and FIFA, we've got Platini and Sepp Blatter hand in hand. And ultimately, they follow one another's example. They set the same set of standards. So whilst I can't be explicit as to the reasons why UEFA don't distance themselves as far as they possibly can from FIFA, it is because I think, 
like you find the 20 people out of 24 that voted for the various World Cups being awarded to Qatar and Russia, Russia. birds of a feather. They flock together. Okay, well, um, that's a shame. And certainly well done to the person on Twitter who found a photograph I'm going to refer to now. Um, If you put into your Twitter, put in Maradona Platini, just those words, into the search engine in Twitter. Amazing photograph of them both playing some football match together, shaking hands, I think they're captains of whatever representative teams they're playing for. Platini is wearing a shirt saying no to corruption. And Maradona's wearing a shirt that says no to drugs. I I knew you were going to say that. I I hope it hasn't been photoshopped. I hope it's real because it's absolutely brilliant. Let's move, and we will get on to the fans, and we will get on to us in the media. I don't yeah. think it's a And owners otherwise. as well, I suspect. Yeah, well, well, let's talk about owners. Okay. I can't go much on people outside of the British Isles because we have different ownership models. You look at Germany, where 90% of the clubs have to have a 51% Fan fans base, representation. Yeah. You go in Italy, where it's all different because the clubs, by and large, don't own their grounds. Yeah. It makes it a very different set of circumstances. But in England, we have seen the transformation of the game from back in the day when it was the local butcher, baker, candlestick maker maker, or successful telephone entrepreneur Mm -hmm. who would buy their local club and do their best for it. Um, In your case, ending up with doing the worst for yourself, as it turned out. Obviously, the influx of money means that at the very top of the game, we've seen nation states, enormously rich hedge funds fronted by people buying up our clubs. And below that, a really unseemly rush to buy football clubs because you think they're going to do something for you. What it is they're going to do, I don't know. But you saw the Italian fella at Lake, Lake Norian. Yeah. Um, we've seen Roland de Chasselet, is that's his name? De Chatelet, uh, yeah. Chatelet Charlton, at yeah. Charlton. Steve Dale recently allowing Barry, Barry yeah. to go out of business. Yeah. You could even say something about Ken Anderson you at Bolton. Say a lot about Ken Anderson, um, yeah. These are, are people who don't get into ownership for the good of the club and their local community as well, they're dishonouring the game, aren't they? Well, they're certainly dishonouring the club and dishonouring the traditions of the club and, and their obligations as a football club chairman. Because whilst having been there, I know how invidious a job it is. But once you've taken that situation on, you have a responsibility. I took it literally, probably a little bit too literally, because at the end of it, I damaged myself more than than I needed to have done. But I think with the identity of a football club comes a great deal of responsibility for those that control its destiny. And football fans, whilst they can be fickle, and whilst they can be very judgmental, and sometimes the very word supporter seems to be lacking in their vocabulary because supporter means to support something. And often certain segments of the fan base will turn away from supporting the club if something they don't like manifests itself. But when you've got owners that do not understand their responsibility, do not understand the meaning of what's involved in owning a football club, then they're dishonouring the very nature of the business that they purport to represent. I'm not getting too far up my own backside with this, but I do feel there are much easier businesses to be in If you pay your money, you take your choice. If you decide that you want to be a football club chairman, then with that goes a raft of responsibilities. And which is the bigger responsibility, to make the club successful on the pitch or to make sure that it's still there for the next person who takes it on uh, in 5, 10, 15 years' time? I think in an ideal world, in a utopian world, you'd say you'd want to achieve both. And having put myself in a position where I jeopardised myself, I fell on my sword and allowed Crystal Palace to continue without any damage by handing it to others for two and six, which I'll leave in the air, in the ether for that. But ultimately... You managed to get two and six, did you? Two and six, (laughs) yes. I was lucky to get the two. But you look at 
the idea that, you know, Roland de Chatelier said in an interview that I did with him recently and somewhere else that you and I ply our trade currently was that he, he only has 2% of his time to give to a football club and effectively and implicitly he abdicated responsibility for the challenges that were going on at Charlton and the reasons why the fans and who he had employed and who he had inherited and what the football club was. And, and you sit there and you listen to some of these people and you just don't understand, they don't get it. If you don't get it, then you shouldn't have it and ultimately, that is the byproduct sometimes of fans wanting someone, the next one that's going to come in and look like he's going to give them what they want. And is always to coin an expression that I used for a book, be careful what you wish for, because you need to get people that really do understand their responsibilities, do honour the tradition. All football clubs will have traditions. All football clubs will have values. And at the centre of them is an emotivity, a sense of belonging, a sense of reason for being here, a feel, a value set that all represent what's great about a football club. And you can't have some guy running the football club that has none of that feeling, none of that understanding, none of that responsibility. Nobody expects somebody from Belgium to get what it feels like to be a fan from the southeast of London. But you get it pretty quick. You get the understanding of what it means to people. And if you don't run these things properly or own the thinking of what's right for the football club, you dishonour those that you're supposed to represent. You're right. I mean, you got Crystal Palace back into the top level of English football, but there are other kinds of success, aren't there? Look, we know that Colchester United is a football club that's had its problems. All all of them below the Premier League have all had problems. Colchester United has had its problems. And their succession of owners, whatever they are, they haven't managed to turn them into you know, a Champions League team or anything else, but they kept the club going and allowed their fans to go and see them. So when, a couple of weeks ago, they draw Spurs in the League Cup, yep. whatever manifestation it's of, the, whatever it's called it was, these yeah. days, yeah, it's Spurs, they get that draw, they win the penalty shootout, every man, woman and child there, because I happen to know two of them very well, yep. who are Colchester fans, all of the difficulty and the cold wet nights when it's nil-nil and there's no penalty shootout against the Premier League Giants and former Champions League finalists they're all forgotten about because of this magical night when your bunch of players many of whom you'll see in the local Morrisons beat Tottenham Hotspur that's what the football clubs are for as well as a sense of belonging to the community one night like that every 10 years goes a long way with these, most of these football clubs uh, and the owners got to understand of this of course they do of course those moments in time do but it's not even those things that if you've been anywhere near a football club as an owner or even someone that's had a real vested interest in the club you absolutely get it you know what this means to people it struck me as a football fan myself I had a father that played for Crystal Palace and I was there as a young boy or a young man and growing up and seeing it I got the value of football but you get it even more when you see the commitment of football fans that go up and down yes they can be sod sometimes football fans they can call you rude names but you know what there's no other business in the world that serves up crap one week and gets you to come back the following week and pay for the same crap so there's something about a football fan that has real uniqueness to it and I just believe that and it's not me being pious and it's not me being pompous about it and it's not me being over sentimental because I'm not overly sentimental I just think if you take on the responsibility of a football club chairman that you have the responsibility to go all in and do it properly and honour the football club that you're involved in whether it's right for Vincent Tan to have changed Cardiff from blue shirts to red shirts they got promoted with it I don't know whether that's a dishonouring perspective in my own mind but you have to have the value set 
of the football club in your thinking and be doing things for the right reasons. And if you don't, if you operate like De Chatelet, if you operate like, you know, in between the wall and the wallpaper merchants like Ken Anderson and Steve Dale at Berry that have no understanding of what a football club represents. Or interest in Dale's case. Or or interest. I think you dishonour yourself for being there in the first place and I think you dishonour the whole fabric of a football club. Just as an aside, I think part of the problem here is that English football, the Premier League, but English football in general has become such a global attraction and a global commodity to use a word that I don't like that when Vincent Tan buys into it or people like Vincent Tan they don't understand I, I don't think that although they have global reach now our leagues the actual clubs themselves remain unbelievably parochial unbelievably local unbelievably trapped in their own history Simon you mentioned the Cardiff fans doing their nut when he changed their shirts from blue to red because he doesn't understand that the blue thing means something to them I mean I just remember Tottenham come back to the thing I know about they wear a white shirt and blue shorts for a reason when they first got into the football league the champions of England were Preston North End so they copied Preston's kit when they first qualified for European football to play in the old European Cup in 1961 the champions of Europe were Real Madrid so Spurs were all white emulated yeah one of the years when George Graham was there as manager because even he having worked Two and a half miles up the Seven Sisters yep. Road. Didn't understand. And someone else should have told him. Spurs wore navy blue shorts in the Europe. Everybody in the ground was going, oh, what's the point of even turning up for this? Who cares? What's the point about the result of this game? We're not doing what we should do. Part of the problem, I think, we do, you've been talking about, with the De Chasselais, with the Tans of this world, is that, as I say, they're part of a business is global now. Yep. They're part of a global community. The things that they're getting into are still centred in community yep. and trapped, as I say, and they in their respons- own history. And they have a responsibility to understand that yep. and honour that and respect it. Everything evolves. Not everything has to be a revolution. It can just simply be evolution. There's nothing... No one wants to stop progress. And nobody wants to sit here being ridiculously over-sentimental. I just feel that despite me often railing and protesting that football needs to grow up, stop being so arrogant, stop living in a world where it thinks it can do what it wants, there are certain parts of football that represent something that are far greater than a person's whim. Obviously, I grew and lived through, and I think you did too, the age of football violence, which is contained largely now because of seat numbering and CCTV. The place where it crops up, of course, is with England fans going abroad. I'm almost, I'm afraid to use the word dishonour here because it doesn't really go far enough. But the game and the country, I suspect, have been dishonoured by people who only go to football international football to get tanked up with a St George's flag on their back and cause trouble what they see as foreigners. Yeah, absolutely. I don't even think it has to be just limited to international football. You know, you can take that into any football, domestic football. If Palace fans at my time went and did something when we were playing at an away stadium that was a discredit to the football club and dishonoured the ideals and aspirations of the football club, I would feel the same way as I do as an Englishman watching a segment of English fans going to Amsterdam and think it's appropriate to stand on a bridge and pee in their river because that's how we operate. Dishonours bicycles yeah, into the canal. You know, Dishonours. You know, I, I even got to the point, and I know people might think I'm being a miserable bugger, but when you know we beat the Swedes in the World Cup last year and our fans have got to run into Ikea and jump all over their beds and take the mickey out of them. I just think to myself, where is the quality of our thinking sometimes? Where is the responsibility to represent ourselves, our nation, and the things that we hold 
valuable about us, which is that we're a unique country, we're an indomitable spirit, we're an island mentality, we have all this wonderful democracy and freedom of speech and all the things that underpin our society. Why do people lose their mind and start to think that football and football supporting gives you an opportunity to be a bleeding idiot and operate in a fashion which is simply dishonouring your responsibilities as an individual, but also embarrassing your country and dishonouring the values that we are supposed to bring. We, If you ask any Englishman, any Englishman with half a brain, I might add, what they think of their country, they'll think that we're one of the greatest nations in the world. They'll look at other countries and they'll say, well, the bloody French are this and the Germans are that and the Italians are this, the Americans are all that, right? and we're the best. So when we operate like this and we're abroad and we behave with this kind of level of stupidity at times, like from a vociferous minority, I might add, yeah. it is a dishonour. It's a dishonour to what the players are trying to achieve on the pitch and what the country wants to see our football fans and players achieve. But I, I think, Simon, that... Part of the problem is that attitude that somehow England or Britain, but it's usually England, is better than everybody else because I'm sure the Italians and the Germans and the Americans think their country is great too. And it's been it, partly it's that thing of needing to disparage other people that leads to a complete lack of respect for other people when you go abroad. Yeah, I think that's also right. a lack of education as well. Yeah, I think that's right. I think we put a lot behind education in this day and age when we talk about racism and so on and so forth, that ultimately people need to be educated. If you don't know calling somebody a black person a monkey is wrong, then it's not education you need. You probably need a lobotomy, you know. And the same thing if you run around in other people's countries causing mayhem, drinking yourself to Palookaville so that you can't stand up and generally behaving in a fashion which is not conducive with the sport that you're watching. You wouldn't want your players to behave in a fashion that doesn't represent the sport. So why would you as fans sometimes, not all fans, want to represent yourself as a bunch of Luddites causing as much mayhem as you possibly can. I do think it brings the game. I think it brings us into being a laughing stock. And I loathe, I loathe it with a passion that we've got this moniker of having the English disease because we've allowed it to happen to ourselves and we've dishonoured the fact that I think we've got the greatest supporters in the world in every single sport, whether it's supporting our boxers, supporting our athletes, supporting our football clubs, supporting our cricketers, supporting our rugby. Everybody looks at English fans and even you know and goes, wow. Where does that sort of passion come from? You're absolutely right. When you see 20,000 England cricket fans at a test match, 20,000 miles neck. from home, when you see that disgrace of a recent World Athletics tournament, yeah. the only athletes who got a big cheer in the stadium, because the stadium was 90% empty for many events, was when the British athletes were announced, because there's loads of British people there. But they, it only seems to be, correct me if I'm wrong, those are attached to the football team that want to go out and cause mayhem. Mostly what they cause is a great deal of admiration. Absolutely. When I was thinking about Dishonoured, Dan, part of the thinking I also had was about things like, I know you're a big fan of the athletics, and Mm. I started to watch it a little bit more over the last few or four days, and I listen to the things that are going on with the Nike Oregon Project, Mm -hmm. and I look at people in the boxing world and the athletics world that are taking drugs and cheating, and when I was thinking about Dishonourability, I think of those sort of examples of where it really manifests itself with the protagonists that are doing real damage to the psyche of people that want to participate in sport to what sport is supposed to represent when you look at people like Justin Gatlin and Freeman and their attitude and outlook what kind of signal and sense does it send to the young people of the world that want to believe that sport has something at its heart and cheating is not at its heart and there there again it's all about leadership from the top we talked about Platini we talked about Bader. when you see Lord Coe the head of World Athletics saying 
four days after the event, he hasn't fully read the report on Alberto Salazar yeah. and the Nike Oregon. You think either wrong there. either you're making that up, yeah. or B, you read it and you're choosing to ignore its contents. Absolutely ridiculous. Now, um, it will be wrong of this show, which claims, the Marathon Bet podcast, it claims to try and be an authentic voice and to look at things squarely in the eye. We've described how wonderful the game of football can be, largely is, and we talked about those who are dishonouring it. We must, I think, look at ourselves a bit here. I mean, it's unbelievable the amount of attention football gets from the media. And as that media has exploded through new electronic media, through the internet, to 24-hour rolling news, every game being televised in one way or another. Yep. It is the relationship between the media. They need football. You can't sell TV subscriptions. Yep. You can't sell lifetime broadband packages to people unless you have football. Is the media dishonouring football at times as well? I think so. I think in many a time I've seen... I'm being explicit about myself. I think yeah. that the way that the media takes and hijacks stories, turns them into things that they're not. Certain segments of the media with this constant reference to slamming or whatever it is, when it's yeah. simply a, just a disagreement or people having a different point of view, yeah. having an opinion, that it becomes sensationalised. It becomes, I hate to use the word fake news, but it's current, it's there, and some of it is, is relevant. I can remember examples of journalistic lacking of integrity, writing articles about myself, that had no truth in them whatsoever. And newspapers and journalism and the media are there to report the game, not to create news. And I particularly loathe the idea that Sky have this wonderful, very clever way of operating, which is basically ask a manager one question about another manager, and then it goes viral by they keep on asking. So Mourinho did this and asking the other 19 managers in the Premier League, yeah. what did Mourinho do there? Or what did Klopp do there? Or what did Guadalajara do there? So they've got 19 different versions of it and 19 different stories. And I think that dishonours the real concept of... It's cheap and nasty as yeah, well. Yeah, of, of the real value of what you want from your media. And of course you've got bias in the media you've got focus from people who like people and who don't like people and I often think that when I read stories I look at the motivation behind the journalists and where and why they're, they're writing these stories or who their pal is I remember sorry I remember reading Jeff Powell back in the day in the Daily Mail and Terry Venables could never do anything wrong because Terry Venables was Jeff Powell's mate you know and you see those sort of things still manifest themselves in the media and I find that a little bit unpalatable I mean and just in case anyone thinks that Simon's having to delve back into the pass for this there's a piece in the daily mirror the very day that we're recording this about players social habits they've got somebody called the secret wag and she has written this report on the sexual mores of young footballers about how they use telephones allow this it should be a gateway for it but simon it's worse than that they have a picture of a hand supposed to be a footballer's hand with a telephone and a report about how they use mobile phones and she's quoting one bloke is married and he's got several girlfriends and he makes one of the other players at the club um, younger player look after the phone for him and all the rest of it because he has two phones not one quote not one name not one attribution that you could research or refute just a load of made up yeah yeah you can bleep that if you want just a load of made-up rollocks about yeah. footballers. No, I agree with you. There is also the flip side to it that there are certain journalists that operate in a way that give us a great deal of insight. I suspect without the journalistic fraternity, we would not really see 
as much as we do about situations like Alberto Salazar and the Nike Oregon oh, project. Absolutely. And, and, and people like Gordon Taylor, with respect to Gordon, being brought to account for what the PFA does and doesn't do and how certain facets... David aspects, Walsh, the way he went after Lance Armstrong. Yeah, absolutely. And these are part and parcel of where the, the media should be operating. But when the media operates with an old lag mentality and perpetuates myths and allows the game not to be held to the standard or represents its own values on it or believes and I've had this I can remember this from Simon Greenberg who was the former editor of the Evening Standard who went on to be the communications director of, of Chelsea telling me that ultimately his reporting I banned Evening Standard from Sellers Park because they were getting right on my you know what <laughs> uh, and I just said if you want to keep being rude about me you can be rude outside the stadium right from out there and, and he was convincing me or trying to convince me or telling me that ultimately his newspaper made my football club made my results and I'm sorry you report something that others do that's your contribution but to dishonour the game in certain ways in terms of the way they write about certain aspects of the game and misrepresent concerns me but you know you, you look across the pantheon of different contributors in sport we could talk all day about dishonourability Dan we could talk about agents dishonouring the business of sport I don't even go there with you by the nature of how they operate and how they purport to represent their clients more often than not sit in chairman's offices trying to do deals that undermine their clients or the nature of the relationship they have with a football club when they try and break it by moving a player by dishonouring the obligation that they sign for, the payments that they're getting, the rewards that they got by trying to instigate a move and dishonourability across every aspect of sport and all its protagonists could be visited upon a variety of people and we could be here for hours about this one. Coming up, we're going to be picking our sinners of the week to go into our sin bin, but first is our charity bet. Based on overrounds versus all bookmakers on home, draw, away, pre-match markets on oddschecker.com, which bookmaker was the best-priced 34 out of 38 weeks in the Premier League last season? Marathon bet. That's right. Before you bet, check Marathon bet first. You may find we're best-priced. Join today at marathonbet.co.uk because better odds mean bigger winnings. For more info, visit marathonbet.co.uk slash landing slash oddschecker. Marathon bet operates in Great Britain under the Gambling Commission Licence. 18 plus begambleaware.org excludes Northern Ireland. Now the part of the show that I know you're all looking forward to where Simon, Jordan and I get made to look mugs by the good people at Marathon Bet who, in their wisdom and their absolute niceness, have turned around and said, all you've got to do, boys is pick three football matches and give us the result of them. Just three, and we will give a load of money to the charity of your choice. We've not done very well at this so far, but we, we, we continue to plod on towards the end of the series. This week, of course, the return of the Premier League following the international break. So with a fresh eye on these things... When we Simon, say we haven't done well, Dan, we've not won anything is what we mean, don't we? If you consider zero a failure, yeah. then we have failed, yeah. yes. yeah. The players have come back from international duty. It's a new round, Simon. Absolutely right, and we're pick, reinvigorated too. Pick me a game that you think you can know the result of. Um, as much as Everton have been having a slightly difficult time recently, I still feel that at Goodison Park they're a challenging outfit to beat, and I think that with West Ham being a lightweight team, despite my relationship with David Gold and David Sullivan, I'm going to pick Everton to win this game. Wow, that is brave of you. That is it brave. It is indeed brave. Uh, Dean Cronk, of course, uh, from a marathon is here with us I and mean, we'll get all the uh, the lowdown on this one what's the odds on this one? Everton to beat West Ham at home is actually 101 to 100 now I was actually amazed to see that why Everton is that were... not just even money? <laughs> that's the way Marathon Bet do it Danny we're the best price yeah. that's why <laughs> yeah. I was actually amazed to see that Everton are in the relegation zone do you think they're too good to go down? 
no such thing. No team has ever no. been invented that's too good to go no. down. I remember that West Ham team with half the England team in it going down with about 150 points. Stuff can happen every season. I want to talk about the Villa against Brighton game. Aston Villa, another team who've had a difficult start to the season, but when they pick up, they really look like they've got something. Before the international break, Grealish was absolutely brilliant. He's a wonderful player to watch. Silly hair, tiny shin pads, but when he starts passing that ball around, he is something to see. Now, I know Brighton will be absolutely full of themselves following their thrashing of Tottenham a fortnight ago, but I suspect this will be a home win for the West Midlands team. Yeah, Villa to beat Brighton 7-5, to and as you said, Danny, what a performance against Norwich, and Simon, your main man, John Wesley, scored. Yes, indeed. Or Wesley John, as I called him last week. <laughs> yeah. yeah, big Wesley John. Yeah, I, I agree, Danny. I really like the look of this Villa side. I think they've got all the ingredients to stay in the Premier League for a long time, and Brighton, on the other hand, although they did get a good win against Tottenham the other day, but, I mean, anyone could beat them, can't they, Danny? Well, yeah, <laughs> Brian Munich can and Brighton can. Now, the reason why we never win any money for our chosen charity, Simon, is because we will you. we will not leave the big because games alone. And so we've decided between us that we will pick a winner um, for the game at Old Trafford, where Manchester United, who would surely do anything to stop Liverpool uh, extending this incredible run of victories in the Premier League. Uh, they take on the current champions of Europe. And I suppose if we were trying to win a lot of money for charity, we'd say Manchester United are going to do it. But neither of us have got an ounce of faith in what who the Old Trafford people are doing. We're both going for Liverpool to win that game. Yeah, Liverpool to beat Man United at Old Trafford is 81 to 100. Liverpool last time out came close to losing their 100% record if it wasn't for a little tumble from Sadio Mane in the last minute. But I think this Man United side, they look like a mid-table team to me. So I think 81 to 100 is good value. And a £20 accumulator on those teams will return £174 and 63p. I think this is the week we're going to do it, isn't it, Dean? Definitely. And those prices were accurate at the time of recording. Thank you. That's Dean Cronk there from Marathon Bets. And uh, this is the week we really are going to put some money into the coffers of the charities. Otherwise, I think we should be just stopped from doing this, Frank. I know I say this every week, but it's true, isn't it? This is the moment you've all been waiting for. Those regular listeners, and we know there are millions of you now, um, will know that at the end of our discussion about a particular sin, we have to consign two individuals or organisations to the sin bin. We're gradually building up a whole team of sinners now. And uh, when we finish the series, in the next programme, we'll be picking some kind of, I can't imagine what it's going to look like, some kind of sinners 11. Um, so this week's sin has been dishonour. And you've heard how Simon particularly has made that what he means by dishonour the list of people who might go in the sin bin here is almost too much I, I, I suspect you'll go right to the top of the tree I will indeed easy blatter straight out of the gate yeah. guardian of the game I know he's been moved aside and marginalised now but he had it too good for too long and he has to has to has to and is going into our sin bin okay well I'll go a little bit further down the pyramid of uh, sinners and that is the, the, that guy Steve Dale who who had Berry in his ownership and whatever the circumstances ends up with Berry being thrown out of the football league after over a century of membership and the reason why I'm picking him above all others is because of an interview I saw him doing on the BBC um, of course all radio interviews are filmed these days and there he was bold as brass large as life when he finished moaning about the way the football community was dealing with him and you've already given me the background to that Simon as if to say well really that has some pretty rich coming from him but the moment when he said that he didn't really have much interest in Berry and that he had never even been to the football ground was the moment I took a real visceral dislike to him 
and not because of anything personal about him, but because of what he represented. Those groups of owners, people who come into football with no regard for the community, the history or the future of the football club. So Steve Dale, I'm taking you as an example of the kind of thing that I think is a virus in the game and you're going into the sim bin. And there you have it, another edition of the Marathon Bet podcast with me, Danny Kelly, and Simon Jordan comes to an end. This time, we've been discussing the sin of dishonour. That is nine sins, the seven original deadly sins, one that I've chosen, one that Simon has chosen. And next week, to close this series of the Marathon Bet podcast, we'll be choosing one more sin that afflicts the great game of football, and you, the listeners, will be choosing it. Watch out on Twitter, at MarathonBetPod. At MarathonBetPod on Twitter, we'll be listing your idea of the sin that we should be doing next week. Cheers for listening. Marathon bet. Better odds mean bigger winnings. 18 plus begambleaware.org.